Welcome to the Elongevity Podcast. This is episode two of our three-episode capsule. We're really excited for you to be here. We hope that you enjoyed today's episode, and we can't wait to see you again. Welcome to the Elongevity Podcast, everyone. This is our uh, second episode in our flagship effort to bring Elongevity to the masses. I am codenamed Lou, your host, one of the early Discord admins and Dojalon lover, and I have a deep love for the Methuselah Foundation and their mission to make 90 the new 50 by 2030. I definitely feel like it will be accomplished. We also want to introduce our co-hosts um, to the Elongevity family once again, uh, Britannia. Hello, um, I'm Britannia. Um, I bring with me 15 years of healthcare experience, specifically in the biotech um, industry on the commercial side. Um, I have my MBA, my master's in health administration, and I've been a Dogalon holder since May of 2021. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here and helping me out with this, uh, this effort as well. And this is going to be an interesting episode. We have an incredible guest today. Uh, an engineer in the space sector of the world. I would like to introduce Gary Hudson. So G Gary, can you please introduce yourself to our community? Sure, I'm Gary Hudson. Uh, spent a little more than 50 years in the commercial space business, um, advocating for low-cost space transportation and human space settlement. Uh, in recent years, I've also gotten involved in the biotech sector. So I'm uh, executive chairman of uh, Ocean Biotechnologies, which is working on killing senescent cells, and uh, Oncosenics, which is uh, developing some cancer therapies. Um, additionally, I'm the president and trustee of the Space Studies Institute, which was founded by uh, Jerry O'Neill back in 1977 to promote permanent human settlement of space. That is absolutely incredible. Uh, we have what was uh, my, my colleague who introduced us called you a space legend. <laughs> and it's, it's very true. <laughs> 50 years in, in the human space settlement biotech, you have with Ocean Bio, Oncosenics, um, cancer therapy, space studies, but also uh, you helped with the SENS Foundation. Is that correct? Um, yes, that was my um, one contribution or major contribution uh, to the longevity field uh, to date. Um, as I made a little money in the space business in the 2000s, I uh, helped fund uh, Aubrey de Grey and the SENS Foundation, the Methuselah Foundation, and uh, sponsored uh, all six of the SENS conferences that were held in, um, at Cambridge University, Queens College. Wow, that's fascinating. So what um, made you get into this industry? What, what you know, ignited that love? <laughs> So I, it's, it's a complicated question because it basically is asking, you know, what formed your, your view of the universe and, and humankind's relationship uh, to the cosmos. And uh, I, I could start without making too long of an answer out of it. I can go back and say it was Walt Disney's fault to start with. Um, in, um, I think it was 1955 when I was five years old. Uh, he and Werner von Braun did a program on human space travel, actually three programs, um, as part of the Walt Disney Hour that was, um, I think it was on Sunday nights, and uh, uh, 
uh, I saw it once in 1955, and I did not see it again until the Disney Corporation released um, a, a Blu-ray disc of the, the program uh, literally f 65 years later, so it uh, or 55 years later. So that got that began my fascination with space, which was further matured by uh, Arthur Clarke's writings, both as a science writer and a science fiction writer. Um, of course, he's most noted for 2001 A Space Odyssey. But when I was 10 years old, I read his book Profiles of the Future, which addressed things like space settlement, but also advanced technology, including longevity science. Uh, and then in the late 60s, um, I read another science fiction author, James Blish, who uh, talked about uh, the combining life extension with uh, interstellar flight. Uh, and so I started joking to people that uh, when they said, what do you want to do when you grow up? Because I was in my late teens at that point, is uh, my, my joke response was, uh, uh, how does this go? Fly to the stars and live forever. So uh, it, it seemed like those were uh, both impossible challenges that uh, would be worthy to dedicate one's life to, to achieving. Yeah, I, I mean, I, uh, I agree for sure. Um, so what is the space exploration industry on the cusp of mastering or implementing as you um, look at the, the landscape of it? Well, that too is a complicated question for the, the simple reason that there are now a ridiculously large number of companies, organizations, and projects uh, trying to do commercial space activity of one form or another. Uh, I would say the most important thing, um, and there's probably no surprise I would regard this as most important, is at last we're on the cusp of achieving true low-cost space transportation, both for cargo, but also for commercial crew. Uh, and the crew part of it is very important. I, I know that a lot of people spend time working on small satellites, CubeSats, things like this, and, and you know I applaud that that work gets done. But personally, I'm interested in human spaceflight um, much less than I'm interested in, say, robotic uh, space exploration. Uh, robots have their place, but but humans have always gone exploring, and, and I think we have to continue that um, into the future. So this um, low-cost space transportation fundamentally enables uh, space efforts of all types, but in the end, and most importantly, it enables the human migration um, into the cosmos and permanent settlement of space, which I believe, if I can use an outdated phrase as our manifest destiny to try and accomplish. <laughs> I hear you. So that brings up another question in my mind. So human space exploration and colonization is incredible to me, but what about reproduction in space? What are the ramifications of that? I think it's a, a huge challenge and a definitely unanswered question. And in fact, when I took over the Space Studies Institute, um, trusteeship from 
its its former trustee, um, Professor Freeman Dyson, who's known, I'm sure, to most of your uh, uh, listeners, um, in 2010, I asked the question of our team, basically, what problem is unsolved when it comes to permanent human space settlement? Uh, and the answer that we came up with, and what I focused the attention of the Institute upon, uh, was uh, gravity, because everything else about spaceflight we can control. You know, we can shield against radiation. We can provide thrust to move from one place to another. We can exploit resources, you know, from asteroids or the surface of Mars or the surface of the Moon. We could collect power from the Sun, uh, and so on. The one thing that we cannot change on a planetary surface like the Moon is its gravity. It's 16G. It will be 16G a billion years from now. And we have zero data, literally not one shred of scientific data that says human beings can reproduce on the surface of the moon, on the surface of Mars, or most of the other minor bodies of the solar system. In fact, there are only two places besides Earth that have the equivalent of 1G gravitational field. I mean, we've, we've spent the last half billion years or so evolving in a 1G field, you know, coming out of the ocean and where we, we spent several billion years coming out to dry land. That's the first time we actually felt gravity. So that evolutionary imperative, you know, we're, we're going to just completely upend it when we, you know, go to the moon or go to Mars. So those two other places, interestingly enough, are both cloud-shrouded planets. One is Venus, which has almost exactly a 1G field, but is totally in, is inhospitable to human life unless you live in the clouds. Mm. And the other is Saturn, which you, you don't want to get to the surface of Saturn because the pressures would be enormous. It's not as bad as Jupiter, but it's pretty awful. So you, once again, would have to live in a cloud city. But everywhere else, you, you can't modify that gravitational field. So number one, we have to ask the question and answer it over the next decade or two. Uh, what is it going to take to, to, you know, can you reproduce? Can a child born in a 1-6 field grow up to be normal and not have serious health consequences? And if the answer is no, then, for example, dreams of colonizing and settling Mars are pipe dreams, they're fantasy. Uh, so we will have to do things like build rotating space stations in space to achieve um, the, the long-term de uh, desire to, to permanently settle space. Like O'Neill cylinders? Exactly. Or 2001 as space uh, odyssey type space stations. Gotcha. Britannia, you have any thoughts? Yeah, so Gary, you bring up some really interesting points with with regards to reproducing um, in, on another planet. Um, how do you think that it relates to longevity and the medical field here on Earth and the research that's being done? How is there a connection um, with that? And is there a benefit with the space travel in the future? So once again, a challenging question. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know that there's a direct uh, correlation. I, I like to say when when I think about aging in the 
broadest sense and the um at the sort of highest level that nothing about aging makes sense except viewed through the lens of evolution so evolution is what drives lifespan whether it's our lifespan or or you know the simplest um creature that that walks on the earth um the same thing can be said of space settlement and human habitation in reduced gravitational fields, as well as things like background galactic radiation and solar radiation and so forth. So it, we have to keep in mind evolution on both these, um, uh, in, in both of these disciplines, because if we do not, we're likely to go wrong. Um, the the broader question of uh, how does say longevity medicine affect space travel uh, in our future um, I think is is actually pretty interesting um, it, on one hand the the thought I had when I was a teenager you know reading Blish's cities in flight uh, novels about longevity and, and interstellar flight. Um, you know, that makes sense if you have a perpetually healthy individual or, um, you know, a negligibly senescing individual. Uh, they'd obviously make great crew members if you're doing generation ships between the stars or something like that. But in the, the more near term, um, there are some anti-aging therapies, for example, killing senescent cells, which that's one of the things that the company I helped found ocean biotechnologies, mm -hmm. um, is in fact working on, uh, well, those senescent cells can be generated by a number of different processes. One of which is radiation. In fact, in the laboratory, we use radiation to artificially age animals and cells in tissue culture. And then we try and fix that with our therapy and, and there are many other people working on similar therapies. So that could have some very near-term applications to say deep space missions to Mars or something like that where crewmen, uh, crew persons will uh, accumulate radiation damage that could be quite serious over the course of a mission. They could be treated during the mission and after return to Earth with uh, senescent cell therapies. Interesting. You know, I have a, a little bit of a philosophical question for you, Gary, because I, it's been a while since I've encountered um, the evolutionary theory in conversation, believe it or not. Okay. So speaking about survival of the fittest, right, do you think it'll be necessary to create intergalactic, you know, hospitals to treat those who may be getting sick? Or do you think it'd be better to just send the fittest on these missions? Well, I, I certainly don't subscribe to the notion that you only send the the fittest individuals because, first off, we, we have no idea what is um, the most adaptive condition going into space. I mean, Arthur Clarke wrote a, uh, either a short story or a novel, I can't now recall which, about a man um, on a space station who was, I don't know if he was commander or or the maintenance man, but he had some important role on the, the space station, but he had no legs because he'd been born with birth defects. In zero G, that was not 
a huge handicap as it might be here in a 1G field on Earth. Um, so, so adaptation is one of those funny things. You know, evolution doesn't care what we think is most uh, adaptive. It figures it out. I'm speaking, of course, somewhat anthropomorphically here, but it figures it out on its own. <laughs> I mean, it, it tries many different things and certainly yes. some people's, you know, some organisms survive, others do not. Um, but, you know, to your basic question, uh, we will absolutely have to take medicine with us. And it, if you have a situation where you've got 10,000 people living in an O'Neill colony, you know, absolutely there will be um, medical facilities and so forth. Um, I mean, all of the things that we do here on Earth, we will take there from coffee shops to hospitals to um, vehicle repair stations to manufacturing integrated circuits to, to writing books um, and so on and so forth. I mean, the, there isn't anything different about space in the way people will live. They'll still have their loves and fears and jealousies and hatreds and um, brilliant insights and mundane daily tasks. It's just another place that we expand to as human beings have expanded throughout their, um, their evolutionary history. And Gary, you bring up a, a great point because that was my next question. If the human, if the human mind was capable of adapting to the new society, the new technology, technological changes on another planet, right? Because mm -hmm. the body, you know, would be restored. And but the, I guess my question is like the mind connection. Are we going? Would the mind and the body be connected, or? You know, because longevity is really focused on the body component, but what about the neuro and the mental aspect of it? Uh, great question. So uh, I go back um, to H.G. Wells. Um, this this will appear a little bit orthogonal to your um, your question, but I I hope to connect it up towards the end. Mm -hmm. um, I, I go back to H.G. Wells, who said the future is a race between education and catastrophe. Uh, now, I strongly disagree with Wells' socialist view of life. I'm a free enterprise guy, a libertarian, but he was correct about education. Uh, and to put this in perspective, I just read a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to his 15-year-old nephew, a young fellow by the name of Peter Carr who I'd never heard of before. It was written in 1785. And in this letter, which is fairly long, he tells his nephew, who's just about to go into the equivalent of college, to study certain classical historical works um, in their original Greek and Latin versions and to avoid translations. Think about that for just a second. Today, I fear that most, say, high school graduates might not even be able to recognize that Greek and Latin are languages. Mm. And, and he's telling a 15-year-old to read um, Thucydides and Plato and, um, you know, et cetera, in their original um, ancient version of the language. 
Um, you know, those same high school graduates might not know who Jefferson or any of, say, the founding fathers might, might have been. They might not even be able to read the letter, which was written in 1785 English, aloud because of the failures of our education systems. So that is frightening to me because um, lacking these basic skills means adaptation is frankly questionable. I mean, can you adapt to technology if you can't do math or science? But, you know, more to your question, if the human mind, you know, can compose a Shakespearean sonnet or a Mozart sonata or build a design, the SpaceX Starship, um, those human minds can create wonders and, and they can adapt to anything. And the, now I'll get just a little bit more prosaic to bring it back to, I think, the beginning of your question, which is how long did it take humans to adapt to using handheld phones with screens? It took from about 2007, when the first iPhone came out, as I recall it, to about maybe 2015. All right. I mean, less than a decade. Hmm. We, you know, as, you know, derived from our primate cousins, you know, who very quickly learn things. I mean, you can, you can teach pan troglodytes, you know, a chimpanzee or, or, uh, the other pan, the uh, bonobo, you could teach them. They can't speak because of vocal cord issues, but you can teach them sign language. You know, look at how fast they can adapt to that. Look at how fast they adapt to learning tools and teaching other members of the the, um, the community um, tool use. So we take the technology very quickly, and and I think we'll adapt to it um, very quickly. But at the same time we should recognize that there are destructive effects from certain types of technology. And, you know, that phone is a good example of it. I mean, all we have to do is walk down a street and watch people who are immersed in a virtual world as versus a real world. And that's probably to their detriment in, in um, uh, both learning and in, um, uh, you know, interacting with their fellow humans. Um, but it also gives you access to all the world's knowledge, which is you know, mm. truly incredible. So I, I think you know we're we're adapting machines. That's what you know. That's what the the result of a half billion years of evolution has has produced. Adaptation is definitely a double edged sword, as you can see with touchscreen phones it makes things a lot easier but then people are just consumed by it as well yeah. um so <laughs> along with the, the the comments you made about education do you have yes. any book recommendations for our community because you mentioned a, a good number of books during our discussion oh goodness uh, <laughs> uh, 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 <laughs> yeah i'm uh, I would uh, almost, I would have to think about that and reflect on it. I mean, I, um, what shaped me 50 years ago is not necessarily what is optimal to, to shape, you know, 
say younger minds today. Um, I, I, golly, um, now that's a question I was not prepared for and probably (laughs) should have been. Uh, But, you know, I, people asked me years ago, decades ago, not so much anymore because we see a lot of science fiction, you know, sort of comic book science fiction on the the silver screen and so on, but, or on TV. But um, I always recommended science fiction novels to people. What, what is generally and now somewhat dismissively referred to as hard science fiction, you know, Heinlein, uh, Paul Anderson, um, Arthur Clarke, Isaac Asimov. These not only told stories and generally told the stories very well, but they they also shaped patterns of thought. They actually taught you to think, which um, uh, I think should be the true purpose of education is versus to to just have you regurgitate facts and dates and you know numbers. Um, so I would recommend anything by the so-called masters of science fiction in the in the past, like Clark and Asimov and Heinlein and, and Pornell and Niven and and so forth. Um, you know, scientifically or from an engineering perspective, <clears throat> a book that. Um, a a couple of fun books on the subject of engineering and might get especially younger people excited about engineering. Um, It's a, it's fairly hard to get your hands on it. I think there are free PDFs now because it's out out of print for the most part on online, but a book called ignition with an exclamation point after it by John Clark. He was a chemist uh, worked for the U S Navy and he recounts the tale of basically the 1950s and early 1960s, the development of rocket propellants. Like most people don't care about it, but he tells such an amusing and charming story about what science was like at the time, what chemistry was like, what aerospace engineering, before we called it aerospace, uh, was like. And Isaac Asimov, interestingly enough, used to work with Clark. Um, during World War II on government projects and wrote the foreword to the book, the introduction to the book. So um, I I find that a good, uh, accessible um, story to read. Um, Clearly, I I suggest uh, The High Frontier by Jerry O'Neill. It's a little dated from a technical standpoint, and it probably won't be the way we actually ultimately settle the solar system and beyond, but um, it provides an expansive view of the future, which uh, I think we lack these days. And my longtime mentor, the late Max Hunter, uh, who was chief engineer on the third stage of the Saturn V and um, key in the development of the space shuttle, and the original Hubble Space Telescope, uh, wrote a book in 1966, which is also out of print, but available in PDF form on on the web if you hunt for it called Thrust into Space, which for anybody who's interested in space flight is a, a really accessible and, and uh, easy to understand and relatively short read that gets into the equations but does it in a way that 
you know, pretty much anyone with a, um, a decent mathematics background could understand. But there's, all, you know, you know, there's obviously a ton of other books, and I, I can't even begin to think about which ones in, say, the longevity space, um, you know, might be uh, most optimal. Well, I appreciate that. I got ignition, um, an informal history of liquid rocket propellants. Yes, John Clark. That's my that's my one takeaway that I'm going to read myself, and that's a, a treasure trove of information. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, I think, um, Britannia, I would I would um, ask you to ask one more question, and I'll ask one more, and then we'll close it off. Um, I'll let you ask the next question, and I'll think of another one. Okay. The question I had for you, uh, Gary, is what are you currently working on that you would like our community to to be aware of or to, to follow? Well, the Space Studies Institute has been promoting the idea of what is called a G-Lab, which um, is basically a gravitational biology lab in orbit to uh, simulate both 1G, equivalent terrestrial uh, G-levels, and lunar and, and Martian G-levels to do animal research to ask the question, you know, if you go through 10 generations of mice or something like that, are they normal? Can they breed? Can their pups grow up to be um, adult mice and, and breed themselves? Um, we don't have the resources to build that facility because it would be hundreds of millions of dollars. But uh, I recently teamed up last year with uh, a company that's in sort of pseudo stealth mode. Um, and so all I can really say about it is you can go to a website, it's called gravitics.com. Uh, and um, that, uh, and see some of the things that we're working on. I'm chief architect of the company and co-founder, um, and which basically means I, I think the, the big thoughts um, at, at at the company. Um, and so hopefully Gravitics will uh, have the, the chance to um, uh, develop um, something like a G-Lab in, you know, sometime in the next 10 years, but at the moment is, is starting on a more modest scale to work on some um, large pressure vessels that will hopefully fly on Starship. Um, in the in the middle part of this decade. Wow! Thank you so much for sharing. That's spelled G R A V I T I C S dot com. Just in case anyone's wondering. Um, and Gary, so the year is twenty forty two. So twenty years from now, where do you see longevity and the space exploration industry? <clears throat> oh goodness! All right, so um, <laughs> the the the. the the space industry will be much advanced from where we're at now, probably not as advanced as any of us working at it would like to see. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's one of those truisms of, of life that we uh, overestimate progress in the short term and we underestimate it in the long term. Um, and 20 years, I used to think that that was a long time, but now I think back. 20 years into my past and say, that was like yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> so th th this is one of the things you all always find older individuals saying is that time seems to compress as we, we age, like, you know, days and weeks go by 
in a flash. Um, so I, I think there will be a huge amount of progress. Uh, I think, you know, we will have gone back to the moon. We will have landed on Mars. We will likely have visited an asteroid or two. Um, there will be rotating space settlements, probably quite small ones of hundreds or maybe a thousand people. Uh, but we'll be on a trajectory, if I could use that pun, um, that takes us to you know ultimate human settlement of the solar system and beyond. On the longevity front, um, it, it it's it's so hard to say because such a huge part of it is not the science, but the financing. Um, there's there's more science that. Um, we want to do that we simply can't afford to do at the moment because the funding tends to go to things like small molecules and supplements and, and stuff that people might make money on pharmaceutically in the very, very short term. But these are not going to move the needle in terms of longevity. You need genetic engineering. You need, um, you need subs substantive interventions that uh, very, very few companies are working on, uh, or or even relatively few labs. So um, the other problem is a regulatory one. You know, you have to go through FDA type approvals and so forth, unless you're a biohacker and trying interesting things on your, your own. Um, and that becomes very challenging because it typically takes about 20 years from uh, a discovery to a commercial sale of a treatment. I think it, I think the number is now 18 years at a billion dollars. And, and this is simply unsustainable going forward if we're going to try a bunch of different things. And I think combinatorial therapies where you combine, you know, say stem cell replacement with killing senescent cells, and you know, these are going to be the, the future of anti-aging medicine and therapy. Uh, I'm hopeful that by 20 years from now, those will be in relatively widespread use. Um, but um, when it comes to government regulation, one can never um, be sanguine about uh, the prospects. Wow. What a, what a final question and answer. Thank you so much. Um, I, I hope I'm not taking the liberty by saying that we could listen to yeah. you talk all night, honestly. Well, we appreciate the uh, the wisdom that you shared Thank you, with Gary. Us. Uh, well, thank you. You've been very kind. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to uh, to share some of my, uh, my craziness with uh, like-minded individuals. <laughs> yeah, we, we appreciate you just as, just as much as you appreciate us. Uh, so here, here's what we're going to do. In 2042, we'll just have episode... Uh, three or 2.0 with Gary, and we can talk about, you know, where science is. Yeah, sounds, sounds good. good we'll be on an asteroid. <laughs> I'll get my intergalactic passport, so I'm ready. <laughs> yes. So this this has been the eLongevity podcast. We'd like to thank our supporters, our community, our guest host, Britannia, our wonderful guest, Gary. And please feel free to visit and support our eLongevity Discord as well. And we can't forget our producer as well in the background. You all have a good night.